But, you know, when Macron arrived in 2017, he totally upended the French political landscape. The traditional um, party governments, Parti Socialiste, Socialist Party on the left, center left, and the Republicans on the center right, they were obliterated. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Leo Kamer. Recently, French President Emmanuel Macron used his emergency powers to pass a law that raises the retirement age and the age at which French people can access their state-funded pension. This recent, very unpopular change, alongside a whole host of other issues, has led to a massive and intense protest across France, a vote of no confidence in the government that only failed by a minute margin, and a general strike. Tara Varma joins us to discuss the ongoing protests in France. Tara is a visiting fellow in the center of the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, studying current French defense and security proposals in the European framework, as well as ongoing efforts to materialize European sovereignty in health, economics, climate, energy, and more traditional security fields. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Tara, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. To start the discussion, I wanted to get a broad overview of the ongoing protests in France. These protests have reached a global audience, especially after the cancellation of King Charles's state visit to France. What caused the protests? So the government has basically launched a reform to um, a law to, to reform the pension system in France, which is always quite a, a thorny issue, even for previous French governments who've tried it. The French are very attached um, emotionally, politically to their economic and social system. And this pension, <clears throat> the pension scheme basically comes from um, a system that, that came out of the Second World War, which was the idea that there needs to be solidarity really embedded in the system. And so the, for the way the French pension system works is that the current active population, the working population, pays uh, and contributes to um, the, the pension benefits to people who are currently retired. It sets a certain age to retire, so it used to be 60, you know, and there are some sectors where it's 55 years old, some sectors where it's 60. The law now says that uh, people have to retire basically around uh, 62, and this law would push it back to 64. Um, But also depending actually on the sector of activity you're in, this law is not for everyone. But the fact that the government wanted to push the law uh, and it needed to push it in, in parliament at the National Assembly and realized that it didn't have the votes uh, for the law to go through. And so it activated a constitutional tool called Article 49.3, uh, through which it can actually pass the law without a vote in parliament. And so protests had started basically in January of 2023, but the activation of this constitutional tool took protest to another level. And what was the scale of of these protests, or what is the scale of these protests? So I would say it varies from day to day. Uh, There have been now 11 days of national mobilization where people basically strike all across France, and the strikes in Paris are very followed as well. Uh, So the the largest day of protest was in March, end of March, and it managed to gather more than a million people all over France. There were some others where it was, um, you know, around 500,000 people, 700,000 people. Somewhere it was much less, 100,000, 200,000, but still 
the mobilization around it, the media coverage, but also the political activity around uh, this issue is now quite big. Um, you may recall that in 2018, 2019, there was a yellow vest movement in France of so people who were protesting against a, a, an eco tax, a gas tax. And they were much, you know, much fewer in, in actual numbers, but also scattered all around France. And they managed to get the government to withdraw their law and to get a number of, of benefits as well uh, in addition. This is interesting because actually in terms of numbers, it's a lot more people protesting. And uh, currently Macron's approval ratings are also very low. And so there is a question of if the mobilization manages to stay and, and you know, to remain actually continuous, whether the government will be forced to pull out the law or not. And clearly, for a number of people protesting, this is the issue at hand. And what Macron and the government are saying is that they will absolutely not withdraw the law. So we are a bit uh, in a bit of a stalemate right now. Tomorrow, so on April 14th, the Constitutional Court in France will basically uh, give out its decision to say whether the law that the government put forward and didn't get through in Parliament, whether it's constitutional or not. And it's not just a black and white issue. It's not just going to say, yes, it's constitutional, so you can keep it, or no, it's not constitutional, so you should just withdraw it. It can say it's constitutional, but we have reservations uh, on this and that point, and you would need, and, and they would tell the government, you need actually to revise the framing or the wording on this and that uh, part of the law. So this is very much what we're expecting, and this may you know, either cool down the situation or actually spark a number of other protests. There are now rumors also saying that Macron will probably have to speak to the French population mid-April a bit later in this way that, you know, he's, it's, it's one of the things that he said when he came to power six years ago is that he wanted to be able to speak to the French population directly to have this contact with them. And so he's realizing now that actually the government is really unpopular. His approval ratings are very, you know, down as well. And he can sense that there is, um, there really is a very little sense of cohesion, political and social cohesion in France right now. So there needs to be something said at his level, an acknowledgement of the situation. And I think that's my personal opinion. Also, in a way, a hand extended to people who are protesting to show that there is room for compromise here. Mm -hmm. And so, as you mentioned, uh, Macron used sort of emergency powers to, to pass this law without parliamentary approval. Why is raising the age of retirement such an important issue that he felt the need to do this? So he says that it's for economic reasons. It is true that if you look at the figures, most of our European neighbors um, have retirement ages that are uh, actually higher than the ones that the French law uh, prescribes. But the fact of the matter is to get your full pension, you actually need to work 42 years. So actually very little people are going to be able to retire at 62 or 64. I think the issue here is that people who would retire in those ages are lower skilled workers, people who are you know, poor in more vulnerable economic situations. And so what we've seen and what um, economic and social studies have been showing is that these people don't usually enjoy their full retirement because they've had such a hard working life that they ultimately actually uh, pass away much much faster than people who have higher you know higher skilled working jobs and so the idea is to say if we're you know if we do want to defend the system this is not a one size fits all solution at all 
it it has to be targeted and ultimately because we're basically um lowering the level for very increasing the, the age for everyone but actually lowering the level for, for people who would need to access uh, their pension rights relatively earlier then we're putting the more vulnerable populations into harm's way and so this is in a way really about the defense of the the, the economic and social system what we call the, the french social model which is based on solidarity so you know of course you need to take to, to compare it uh, with what other europeans are uh, other European countries and partners are doing, but there is a specificity about the French model. I think that probably could have been reworked in a very different manner. What we've been seeing since basically the COVID pandemic is that um, working habits throughout the world, and that's also very true in France, have changed. People who have the possibility of having flexible working conditions are taking them on. And so increasing the retirement age seems to be a solution also that, you know, basically dates the pre-COVID world. I think the fact that people people are working in a more flexible, some people have the, the, the possibility to work in a more flexible manner. This new law doesn't take that into account at all. There was an opportunity to really rethink the future of work and how we decide to spend more or less time together, maybe take time off, when people have young kids and then they can work a bit later on but you know to acknowledge that this time off in the middle of your life can also be important so it's not just about retirement really thinking about how we think of ourselves as workers in a totally different way and i think this law doesn't reflect that at all as well and there is a sense for younger generations in france that actually this pension system is going to die in any case and so it's not so much about defending their pension rights which is the way it's been caricatured, but realizing that their parents or grandparents might not benefit from the solidarity system that they're contributing to. And so it's also about defending actually older generations, I would say. So do you do you buy at all um, Macron's reasoning for, um, for increasing retirement age that basically the pension system as it stands is, is economically untenable? I mean, I can totally see why he would say, I think it's very logic for him and it's been, you know, logic for a number of governments to say that. The, the rethinking that I that I was mentioning just earlier means a totally different way of looking at things, almost a paradigm shift. And so, of course, that would need, you know, probably a feasibility study, talking to econom economics professors, um, talking to social workers, trying to reframe completely our model and and... And in the wake of the war in Ukraine, in the wake of budgetary spending that has increased, probably, you know, it doesn't seem like this is the right moment to think about a, fundam a fundamental change to how we view solidarity in our country and in Europe and how we think of the way we work today. But there is a new industrial revolution that's coming. We are living through it right now. And, and I think that the solutions that we're providing are solutions basically from a former world. So I think... I can see from his point of view, and you know, he needs to vote his budget every year. I mean, I think from his point of view, it's logical. But also, as the youngest French uh, president that that France has ever had, someone who's also worked in the private sector, I think there was an expectation that if someone was going to bring some innovation to this thinking, all the while preserving the solidarity system, it could have been him. And so I, you know, I find that the solutions that he's been bringing are solutions older than him in a way. Sure, and that that sort of goes into what I was I was wondering, which is, why now? Why at this moment has Macron decided to to uh, undergo this, or to have the country undergo this this change in policy? 
So, you know, he was re-elected last year. The, he knew from the onset that this was going to be an unpopular reform. And the idea was to get it done as soon as possible, basically, because he was never naive, I think, about the fact that people would endorse this. I, there was, you know, every time there's been a pension reform in France, there have been protests. So this is, I think he was expecting that. But he also um, believes and portrays himself as the person who can bring reform to France. And this is why he wanted to be elected six years ago um, when he was campaigning in his for his first term. He believes that, you know, there are a number of, of reforms that haven't been passed, that France is usually caricatured to be a country that you cannot reform. And so he he was ambitioning to be the person who could change France. So I think there is also a sense for him, I mean, at least that's what he says, uh, that he's okay with being unpopular on a number of issues if he's the one, you know, actually transforming the country. Hmm. And another thing I was I was wondering is that accompanying these protests, there have been general strikes. Um, what would have been, compared to the protests, the impact of the strikes on French politics? So striking is always a political tool that I would say is more mobilized in France probably than in other countries, though, you know, Germany actually underwent its first massive public transport uh, strike a few a few weeks ago and compared it to the French, basically, in a positive way, saying we're doing almost as good as, as the French. Um, but I think it's it's been it's always been part of the French political culture to say we're trying, you know, things don't always work uh, in parliament. We have a majoritarian rule in France. So, you know, if you have a majority in parliament and the majority follows the, the president, then it's it's pretty hard to get some form of political compromise. It's a, a bit of, it's a different situation now because the government doesn't have this majority and lost it at the last parliamentary elections in June, 2022. But basically the idea in France is if you can't, you can't get things done or compromise done in parliament, then you do go down in the streets and you do protest. And usually protests, well, of course, get media attention. They put the country to a standstill. So if you know, if you have less public transport in Paris, less buses, less metros, then that that puts uh, certainly contributes to some form of chaos and the country not working as as well as it should. And so that's also the idea to get the government and the president's attention on this. And I wouldn't say that it's a tool that's mobilized lightly because, of course, when people go on strike, they lose salary. So it, it is also a decision. I mean, when you when you want to do it, you, you want to do it because you think you're contributing to a form of change. And so I'm not surprised that this is the way it works because it is also true in French political culture that oftentimes when there have been huge, huge protests, you know, sometimes gathering millions and millions of people, this is the time where the government has to back off. And it's the best way in this majoritarian rule and, and in, in this situation where usually the president is above all the rest, if but also feels like he is channeling a special relationship with the French people. It's one of the only ways, basically, apart from voting in, in uh, local, regional, national elections, it's one of the only ways for the French people to take a stand and to say that they disagree. So this is something that's been mobilized regularly in France, more than in other countries, but also because the Fifth Republic and how the, the French constitution is made doesn't allow for much uh, compromise. So it, we don't have so much of a habit, you know, like in Germany or other places of actually the government negotiating with the unions, uh, working a compromise or a deal together. This has not been really in the past 60 years, 70 years, how the French system has worked. And so 
the fact that the government lost its majority in uh, its absolute majority in June 2022 and that it has a relative majority now is also making us um, basically see a new way of doing politics. The government has been trying to form majorities with other parties, but but you know when Macron arrived in 2017, he totally upended the French political landscape. The traditional um, party governments, Parti Socialiste, Socialist Party on the left, center left, and the Républicains on the center right, they were obliterated. He constituted and he took the time to constitute now this massive, basically central pole, but in a way has also reinforced um, uh, the two ends of the, the spectrums and, and, and polarized them. So the far left and the far right are actually quite strong. There is a left-wing coalition with a number of, of uh, left-wing parties as well, including the far left, uh, La France Insoumise. And so he has upended the French political landscape and he is still in a way trying to understand how this new political landscape works because even though he's wanted to change it, he still feels very attached to his reading, his interpretation of the French constitution, which is that it's very much a top-down approach. The president you know, is above the rest, is supposed to give the, a great strategic outlook and, and things are supposed to be implemented by people below. But this, this is not really how things work, I would say, right now. And he has an opportunity as well with this constitution to look at, at finding compromise, to look at working with allies, uh, but also making clear that there are some people with whom we shouldn't be working. And typically the far right, we shouldn't be considering them as any sort of partners. This is also one of the difficulties that we've been experiencing is that basically it seems like it's, it, you know, all parties are equal and I don't think they are one, one of the, the big things coming out of the Fifth uh, Republic was that the far right was to be kept away and that, you know, we were coming out years after the Second World War and the trauma of the Holocaust and the Shoah, making clear that we couldn't accept the far right as being part of the French political equilibrium. And they were they were a minority. Now they're, they're very much part of, of the majority. I would say it's not the majority of the French population. But, you know, it, it, it seems pretty logical that Marine Le Pen gets into the second round of the presidential election. Uh, she's against Emmanuel Macron. And last year, he, he won. He got 58% of the vote in the second round. But that meant that she still got 42% of the vote. And the level of participation was pretty high. Three out of four French voters came out to vote and decided, you know, for 42% of them to put to put her name in, in the ballot box. So I think that's... We're also seeing, we're basically seeing and experiencing ch these changes in the French political landscape that we don't really know um, what they will lead to and what their consequences on the long term will be. And so I think he's also struggling with that. He had a vision for what he wanted to do, reforming France amongst others, but he's also totally changed the political landscape. And, and I think we're all trying to figure out how this works right now. And it's not... It's not working perfectly, for sure. Mm -hmm. And and on uh, Macron's issues, perhaps understanding the political landscape or uh, issues of image, uh, we had this case recently where he took off a watch allegedly worth over 80,000 euros, uh, and that incited a social media backlash. Um, I'm wondering if this incident points to a larger image problem that Macron has. Is is this unrest a broader manifestation uh, of, of France's rejection 
of Macron's personal brand of politics, which he used to upend French politics, as you said? So I think uh, this precise story was completely debunked. I don't think his worth, his watch is worth 80,000 at all. I think it's just that he kept clunking it against the table and got, and got, uh, agitated and so he removed it. Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's, I think it's a nice watch, but it's not worth that, that amount of money, but on the image, you're right. And I think one of the, one of the reasons and the, the qualifications that he got during the yellow vest protest was that he was the president of the rich and that has stuck and it's remained. And there's still this idea that actually Macron represents the interest of the, you know, higher income level um, people in France, more qualified, he's part of the elite, very much, you know, the, the intellectual, but also financial elite, he worked in a bank. And so there are many ways to caricature that, to caricature that, but this has certainly uh, been sticking to him and it's not going away. And I would say that's part of the image problem, but I also, he's not so used to compromising and he often thinks that he's right. And so when he puts something forward, um, he doesn't want to, he, you know, he doesn't want to change that. He thinks that if he's spoken, then it, it probably means that this, that he's following the right path. And I think what most people have struggled with until now is that it's, that it's hard to get through. So during the yellow vest movement, we were in the first two years of his first term, clearly his team was very much taken aback by the level of protest and the fact that they seemed to be saying something and there was a disconnect huge disconnect between the elites and the rest of the population in France, but also the elites in Paris and the rest of the population, even the elites in other parts of France, other regions of France. But he was the incarnation of what made people angry. And so his reaction at the time was to do what he called the grand debate, which is that he went throughout, you know, many places in France, talking to people directly, thinking that if he embodied this frustration, then he was the one personally who needed to bring a solution. So he did the grand debate. He gathered a number of in French intellectuals trying to understand what the protests were about and what the solutions could be. But this was also a situation that was a bit out of the world because you know the French president can't always just do that, just be the personal answer to to what people. To, to what people feel and to the fact that for them, they embodied this frustration. That's also part of the job of president. And the response here, in a way, is quite different than what it was under the yellow vest. So he still has this idea, that the, this image being the president of the rich, um, but he is he's outsourcing and delegating the response to the government actually. And, and, but he's also making known his frustration with the prime minister. He feels that she's not, she has not delivered on what he was expecting her to deliver. So typically his agenda, his reform agenda, uh, she didn't manage to get the votes in parliament. So he, you know, and he is making his anger and frustration known in the press, which I think is also not super helpful because then it, it decredibilizes her very much in the eyes of her own party, of her partner. So that that doesn't help, but he's outsourcing it more. And I don't think, let's see, he still wants to talk from time to time and to embody this voice of the government and the voice of the presidency, but he's delegating a lot more this time around than when he did uh, during the response uh, to the yellow vest. So I think that's also quite important. He's probably trying to distance himself from that uh, very much because he feels I think we can see that the situation is in such a stalemate um, that someone will lose and he doesn't want to be the one losing. So 
let's see. Let's see if that changes. But I think this image is going to just take for sure. And how how did the Yellow Vest protest end? Do you think these protests will end similarly? I think the Yellow Vests ended because there was a solution and and a compromise brought by Macron directly. And you know, he withdrew the gas tax. So I think that's that was the solution to it. There are still, you know, a minority of people gathering around those roundabouts. So this was the image, you know, of them. They were there are many roundabouts on, on roads in France. And so they were gathering on the roundabouts. Um but it was unexpected for the government that there would be such a reaction, precisely because of the disconnect between the elites and the rest of the country. This time around, it, the protests, I would say, from Macron's side are not like, unexpected. They were very much expecting to have protests from the unions and from the people. And they know in French history that this is usually a reform that sparks a lot of attention and frustration and anger. So. He's, he wants to power through this. He, I mean, you know, he keeps saying, we are not going to withdraw the law. This is going to stay. My, I have a reform agenda. So he needs to find a way to compromise, I guess, at some point. At least I would say, I think the onus is on him to compromise. But I think the situations here, the, you know, there are very different situations. I think he was expecting these protests and, and is deciding that, you know, sure, people can protest, but actually he needs to get on with governing. And I think this is where I'm hoping that the situation will not deteriorate because my sense is that there is there is a lack of social and political cohesion right now in France that he could bring the beginning of a solution to. It's not that he can't do everything on his own and it's not just about Macron, but he has... Because again, he's this younger person. He's worked in the public and the private sector. He could, he you know, he could be the embodiment of something new, a new way of doing politics. And this Fifth Republic, the the Constitution of France, was really it was thought of and written by De Gaulle and his advisors, but also thought for De Gaulle. And and of course, each president since since 1958 have had their own interpretation of it. Macron very much was in the idea that he was going to transcend the goal and that he wanted for all the previous presidents to be forgotten. But there would, for him, it was important that there would be the idea that the goal was the founder of this fifth republic and Macron would be his best, you know, Macron would basically embody his legacy. But first of all, the goal had to leave also at some point. De Gaulle, in 1968, the protest, basically, he said himself he didn't understand uh, what the French population wanted anymore, and there was a sense of disconnect. So this can also happen between the French president and his population. But I think he did want to make sure that he was representing the country as a whole. And so this is also now on Macron's shoulder to probably look into himself and see how he can represent the country as a whole. This is the expectation that we have uh, of him. And also, he has four years left in his terms. So, you know, there there are a number of things that need to be done. We have the French protest, but there is a lot going on in the rest of the world. He wants, you know, to represent European interests, to defend European interests. He's looking at, of course, uh, how the war in, in Ukraine is playing out, competition between China and the US. So he also has a pretty massive European and, and foreign policy agenda, in addition to everything that he wants to do in France. But it would probably be a mistake to decide that this is 
this is the situation where he takes a stand and doesn't want to change anything because it could turn the French population against him. And as I said, he still has four years to go and a number of reforms to pass, and he still has a relative majority. There are a number of scenarios right now of what he could do, but a dissolution of the National Assembly, which is one of those scenarios, um, could lead to the far right basically being the first political party in France. That would not help his agenda either. And so, you know, there's a question of how he compromises with unions and the French population, but also how he manages to form a new political majority that can help him get his laws and, and reforms through. And, and I don't think we're there on any of these uh, different points uh, because it, he doesn't really see himself as someone who can bring the compromise. He believes that, you know, he has an idea and people will need to deliver on that. So there is a profound change that is needed. And, you know, he is relatively young. His teams are younger than 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 they usually are. So I I think I'm still hopeful that they will they will proceed to these changes because they are quite important both for France and, and I would say for the conduct of his own foreign policy. So it remains to be seen. I wanted to conclude our discussion by looking ahead to the next presidential election, 2027. As you mentioned, uh, the most recent election was a uh, decrease in support for Macron's party with only a 17% um, lead uh, or 17 percentage point lead over Marine Le Pen's party. Do you see these renewed strikes as a sign that Macron might lose the majority support needed or Macron's party, I should say, would that, would that party lose support to win at the next election? The thing is Macron's party was built around Macron. And so there is a big question right now of who can take over the legacy of Macronism. He is not, you know, again, he has four years to go, but he should be preparing for some people basically to be the ones who could take over or some people would need to arise and, and be the perfect incarnation of that. And because France is not used to having such a huge center, there are people who are quite close to him who are more center-left. There are people who are more on the center-right. So they have different perspectives on what are the political, economic, social solutions to France. He is very much someone, you know, he keeps saying that he wants to do things en même temps. So he was, he arrived, and that's also quite interesting, he arrived, upended the political landscape by saying, I want to, to overcome the traditional political cleavages that France has had, you know, to overcome the traditional left-right divide. This is not what people want anymore they want some form of compromise they want they want global solutions that get everyone together but today people who are basically claiming to be his heirs have very different perspectives first of all that i would say than his but also amongst themselves of what the future of france and the future of macronism should be and so there's going to be i would say quite a bloody uh, battle between these these different people who want to be uh, the legacy of Macron, but who de represent different things, and they will need to activate this whole political machinery that he has created on his own. And I don't see, for the time being, any one of them who could do that. Both embody the future of Macronism and also use the political machinery that he has created. So. It's also possible that new people will come up, but for the time being, there is no one in France who could take over as the legitimate heir or, you know, so, yeah, let's say the legitimate heir. So that also reinforces 
the other poles and the other ends of the, the political spectrum. And I think that is pretty scary. And in a way, there is a Macron has a responsibility right now in rebuilding the French political landscape, whether it's around Macronism or trying to, to get it to be more balanced. But but I would say to move it away from, from the extremes and the extreme ends of the spectrum, which are not so isolated anymore. All right. Well, Tara, thank you for joining me. This was a very interesting episode on the French protests. Thank you so much for having me and have a great day. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.